Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the new statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week, we're talking about Hannah Gadsby's Netflix stand-up special, Nanette, and the Pixar animated sequel, Incredibles 2. Caroline has also listened to the Let's Eat Grandma album, I'm All Ears, for the first time. So we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously, coming to you from an unseasonably warm UK. Is it as hot up there where you are, Caroline? It has been, although today I opened the curtains and it was blessedly grey and the ground was all wet, so I think it rained in the night. And I was as excited about that as I was at the beginning of the heat wave about the sun. <laughs> I'm still really enjoying it, I have to say. I know a lot of uh, Brits have kind of decided that they're, they're wilting in this weather and they want it to go away now, but I don't know. I just love it, man. I, <laughs> it makes me feel like I'm on holiday all the time. And yeah. Well, I think the problem I have is that I'm not actually on holiday, although it feels like you could, so you still have to work. I know, that is hell, actually. aren't appropriate. Yesterday I had to do a very small amount of work on a Sunday and I was just like, this is this is not fair. I could hear like people celebrating the football and, mm. you know, just enjoying themselves while I worked at my desk at my window. And I was just like, you know, that episode of The Simpsons where Bart's like stuck inside on the snow day. It yes. was like that, but with extreme heat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But to start the show today, we're going to be talking about Nanette, a stand-up show by the Australian comedian and writer Hannah Gadsby. It covers her experiences of homophobia, abuse and discrimination, and explains her decision to stop doing comedy. It was released on Netflix on the 20th of June to international acclaim, with Vox saying that the show had upended comedy for good. Which is a huge claim, eh, from Vox. But yeah, I feel like this show is one of a lot of misdirection, starting with its title, because Nanette, as she explains in the opening seconds and minutes of the show, um, is a name that Hannah Gadsby chose because she named the show before she wrote it. And she thought that there was this woman called Nanette who'd be such a great um, topic for the show. 
and then realized that it, the show wasn't going to go in that direction at all. So now you've kind of got this name, Nanette, just sitting on top of a show that's really nothing to do with the title. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of, you know, maybe it's one thing, no, actually it's something else going on in this show. And that's part of the, I would say, visceral thrill of watching it that you just, I mean, I'd read quite a bit about it before I even watched it because it has been a real moment with a capital M in Mm. pop culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vox is not the only place to make really big claims for the impact that it's had. You know, The New Yorker wrote a really complicated and intellectual piece about what it says about like this me too moment and the sort of practice of stand-up comedy all rolled into one which to be honest was almost a bit too clever for me oh I need to read that who wrote that but yeah so then even actually starting watching it I was a bit confused for the first 10 minutes or so because you know I'd read all these fancy intellectual pieces about it and actually it just seemed to be good stand-up comedy Mm -hmm. someone talking about their experiences of coming out of you know homophobia in their small town but in a light and fluffy way that you're familiar with you know set up joke set up punchline all the way through and then suddenly it stops being that which is very surprising and she actually starts to deconstruct what she's doing like she speaks directly to the audience I feel outside of her comedy persona and says I can't keep doing this the way that I have to create tension in the room with a personal experience and then resolve it for you so that you'll laugh Mm. is it's really harmful to my own understanding of myself Mm -hmm. um, because I have to package myself and my life and my stories in such a way that it always has these resolutions and that's not how I am yeah I kind of sat there transfixed once she started in on that stuff because it's completely brilliant yeah the concept of tension and comfort and tension and discomfort is something that comes up a lot. And I think she does a really effective job of kind of communicating the idea that the more comfortable a kind of mainstream, for want of a better word, straight, white audience feels, mm. actually the more tension is then being placed on, that burden shifts onto the people who aren't in that mainstream in the audience. So that might be non-white people or gay people. She does a really good... It, explanation really through enacting it rather than through explaining it in a wordy way she just shows you rather than tells you that the more you're laughing she just really encourages you to look at where the laughs come from in these punchlines and if you're laughing at a joke that reinforces stereotypes because it makes the room feel comfortable because it's kind of a very traditional joke that they all know and all Mm. can understand actually what's that what that's doing is just displacing the tension from one set of people to another um yeah she has a really good line where she says um because she says that her a big part of her comedy has always been self-deprecation and she says that you know when you already speak from a place of marginalization you know she's a sort of semi-masculine presenting lesbian woman it's not humility when you self-deprecate it's humiliation she mm, says mm-hmm. and that's what you're laughing at yeah and that line is is thin isn't it and yeah she does a really good a good job of explaining how comedy works in a way that isn't boring or like technical mm. she's showing you all the time and it's very lively and it's very very uncomfortable at points but she does a very I think it, it has so many levels what she's doing because 
she might tell you a joke, a very formal joke. So one of the ones that she kind of opens with that really does like rest on stereotypes is something like what kind of comedian can't even make the lesbians laugh? Oh, every comedian ever. And I actually didn't get that joke at first because I just, it feels like so long ago that the stereotype of like, oh, lesbians are humorless (laughs) was really in the culture that I was like, wait, what? And then I was like, oh, right, that's the joke. And then she kind of adds a little bit of like similarly jokey meta um, explanation where she's like, oh, it's a good joke because the only people who don't think think it's funny are the lesbians. But if if we don't laugh, we prove the point. Yeah. So that's like the first level of deconstructing that joke. But then her whole set is actually taking a pickaxe to that joke in a much deeper way as the show carries on. So it's like she unravels her own jokes immediately and then she does it again and again and Mm. again. Um, So you end up just she's like pulling at these threads until the entire concept of a comedy show is kind of in ribbons on the floor around her. Which I think, yeah, it's it's incredibly self-conscious and incredibly meta and like... Um, I went back and started watching the beginning after the end because there is a big kind of callback moment that really undoes yes. the whole thing, which I feel like we shouldn't spoil if people are going to watch it. Mm. But she tells a joke early on in her set that you're invited to laugh at. And then later she kind of twists that joke and you realise that actually it's a site of massive, massive trauma for her. and We've been laughing at something incredibly traumatic. But the way that she even uses tiny little words all the way through... I, re- I realize now is like, oh, wow, you're, you've been doing this, this the whole time. Like words like tension and comfortable just come up like yeah. all the time. And it's just so layered and so clever. And I think you could go back having seen that massive callback moment to the beginning and watch the show from the beginning and get something totally different out of those first 20 minutes than you would the Absolutely, first time. Yeah. Yeah. And I found myself thinking some of the time what it must have been like to be in the audience for that. Mm-hmm. Because so the Netflix special was recorded at the Sydney Opera House, but I looked it up and, you know, she'd been testing and performing this show for about a year beforehand, including at the Edinburgh Festival. And whilst I think, you know, Hannah Gadsby is moderately well known or was before this, moderately mm-hmm. well-known in stand-up. She's also in Please Like Me um, in one of the later se- series and stuff. So I, I think people would have gone to her show expecting a like LGBT-friendly night of laughs. Yeah, totally. There's no way you would have expected this because I don't think anyone's ever done this before. And then to sort of experience that switch in real time without being able to like, because a, a couple of places I like paused the show to think about Mm. before I carried on and stuff Mm. you can't do that when you're in the room and even through a recorded Netflix special I feel you can feel the atmosphere in the room Mm. a little bit and there are moments when it just goes completely like you know a pin would drop Mm. and you would hear it really loudly kind of thing Mm -hmm. which is incredible like she commands the room in a way that I know lots of stand-ups are good at that but this is like a whole nother level yeah totally And there are parts to it where even at the end, I feel like I still have some uncomfortable questions. So like right at the end, she throws in a joke, like saying all the men in the room need to pull their socks up. And then she goes, fashion advice from a lesbian, how humiliating. That's your last joke. And it's like, oh God, we're still laughing at these jokes, even after this hour of you kind of of showing all the flaws in doing that. Yeah. And And there's a feeling of relief when everyone laughs at that, which is really uncomfortable as well. But it is like she's popping that balloon of like anger and horrible rage. And you're like, oh, we're allowed to laugh for a second. And that is where the laugh's coming from. But it's still kind of uncomfortable. And it also, on a broader note, kind of feels uncomfortable to me that 
Hannah Gadsby has reached a level of incredible international acclaim from this show where as a minority she has to recount all the Mm. most traumatic things that have ever happened to her and that's why we'll listen to her now and it kind of feels like god why do we place that burden on on people in those situations in our society that like it's funny that Hannah Gadsby didn't become internationally successful with with the traditional comedy that she was doing before it's only once she's decided Mm. like actually I'm going to talk to you about all these terrible sexist homophobic violent things that happened to me in my life that we're ready to (laughs) to kind of stand up and listen and you know she's dealing with that problem in her show but she can't answer it and obviously no one can answer it it's a really difficult question but it's not the kind of show that you can go away feeling like oh yeah that was like woke and I feel good now (laughs) yeah I wanted to because obviously it's very unusual for us to talk about two stand-up shows in two Mm -hmm. weeks because we talked about Ali Wong last week Mm -hmm. and I think whilst I don't think you need to compare them because they're doing two completely different things I do think I found myself comparing the feelings they gave me Mm -hmm. because I definitely think Ali Wong's show is really funny and mm. it is really clever and it is doing a lot of things with the stand-up form that maybe don't get done very often before mm-hmm. but I did stop watching it and sort of feel like oh that was great I really enjoyed that like I feel like a nice warm glow of having been amused mm. and that's not how Hannah Gadsby's makes you feel no and that's not how she wants you to feel not because she has a much bigger object in mind I am fascinated to know what she is going to do now because as you say everyone is listening to her but the very premise of Nanette is I don't want to do comedy anymore yeah it's interesting I mean I think a great kind of model would be something like what Tig Notaro did where she did this incredible stand-up about her cancer and it is kind of like god where do you go from there because it was really visceral and really raw and then she instead of carrying on with stand-up comedy made a really nuanced and deep and loving and wonderful comedy drama series called one mississippi so i could imagine hannah gadsby maybe getting her own kind of scripted Mm. tv show i think that would be really cool but yeah it's it's a really incredible hour-long watch and you should definitely all watch it one thing that i'm kind of nervous about is there is an almost unrelated but there's a strain of comedy that is like people saying left-wing statements to claps and yeah. what I hope doesn't happen is that Nanette kind of fosters a lot of much worse <laughs> comedy in that vein. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. there's something incredibly unexpected about this show. But I have also seen some quite predictable stand-up comedy that is just like people being like, sexism is shit. And then everyone's like, woo, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah sort of woke reinforcement. Yeah. And I'm just like, come on, like we can do some we can do stuff that's more clever than that. And I have a fear that Nanette's gonna make that kind of comedy mm. have a little bit of a risk, which is nothing to do with Anna Gadsby because hers is very clever and very knowing and very self-conscious. And and... With an object in mind that like she is doing yeah. it all to a purpose. Yeah. yeah. It did um because I've always really liked Stuart Lee's stand-up and really enjoyed his TV specials and stuff. And I have to say, Hannah Gadsby has made me reevaluate my yeah. liking of Stuart Lee yeah, totally. because he does do some of the things that she was doing in terms of telling a joke and then deconstructing it and mm. being very meta and all the rest of it but now I'm thinking like what the hell for what was your point yeah. why did you do that it just got you a few titters like yeah. where Oh, maybe I'm holding him too to, too high a standard, but just entertaining me is not enough anymore. Yeah, that is increasingly, I think, how a lot of us feel, though. So I don't know. It's interesting. And she does do quite a good line in, in kind of eviscerating those kind of angry male comedians where she's like, 
oh w- they don't like it when women do angry comedy like mm. but what are and all the like, angry what, what men if, angry what, for <laughs> yeah what have they got to be angry about <laughs> you're like yeah true yeah um, but yeah it's definitely everyone should watch it it's really interesting really good watch mm-hmm. i'm nick friedman i'm lee alec murray and i'm leah president and this is crunchyroll presents the anime effect We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to (laughs) pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in, hold it. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So now we're going to talk about The Incredibles 2, which is a Pixar animated film and the sequel to 2004's The Incredibles. The plot of the new film follows on immediately from the action of the first and focuses again on the superhero family of Mr. Incredible, Elastigirl and their children as they try and fight evil and prove the worth of superheroes to society. The voice cast includes Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter and Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. So what were you a fan of the original Incredibles movie, Caroline? I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. It was actually one of the very first DVDs that my sister and I had, I think, Mm. because we were, our family was quite late in adopting Mm. discs rather than VHS. And yeah, just watched it over and over again. And it's, and you know, it came out in 2004. So I was in my late teens. And the more I watched it, the more I appreciated like how tightly plotted a film it was, like how clever all the sort of moving parts fit together. Because it's set in a a sort of not quite recognisable society, mm-hmm. right, in which, um, you know, there are superheroes. There once was a time when superheroes would, you know, jump in and save people whenever anything bad happened. But then the tide of public opinion turned against them. There were lots of like accident lawsuits, I think, that happens in the first film, doesn't it? Like people wearing neck braces saying like, Mr. Incredible saved me, but now I have back pain. So he should have to pay me money. Overall, superheroes end up having to sort of go into hiding and not be crime fighting 
people saving Mm -hmm. paragons anymore and the whole of the first film has this tension between like Mr. Incredible being a superhero and Mr. Incredible having to work in a boring insurance job and just like look after his kids and his life is so dull when you know the fact that a sequel has finally rolled around so much later I was really interested to see how you could keep that going because I felt the characters had progressed quite nicely from a point of we have this dual existence Mm. where the humdrum and the exciting they'd sort of by the end of the first film got to a point where the two had sort of merged a bit more and everyone was being a bit more grown up about it Mm. so I wasn't really sure how they would take that on yeah as it were so yeah um, I was very interested to see this film yeah it's it is as you say it's kind of like a difficult setup for a sequel because also there's like a joke at the end of the first movie isn't there where it's like the sequel kind of begins at the end of the first movie Mm, um where they've kind of like finally completed all the like troubles of the first movie and then suddenly there's like a new villain appears and like they're all like oh god we've got to like get on with the crime fighting again uh and then they said there wasn't going to be a sequel for a long time so it's kind of uh it's it's a tricky situation to be in and they kind of start off much more in the domestic sphere, I think, maybe than you'd expect in this sequel. Um, I remember on the DVD, do you remember there was Jack Jack Attack? Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah which was short. like a short about the babysitter um, really struggling to deal with Jack Jack because of all his bizarre powers, the, the youngest Incredibles baby. I kind of always thought like, God, it would be great to see an Incredibles movie, which was just them like chilling out at home. After, like, mm-hmm. after that short and that is in a way what a lot of what's happening in this movie um yeah because the premise is kind of that elastigirl mrs incredible is given an opportunity to kind of take the reins and take the lead and do some solo superhero work which means the rest of the family are actually for a lot of the film kind of just like going about their normal family life um, yes and in that classic like dad in charge situation yeah yeah, which I actually really enjoyed but I do think it's kind of an odd decision even though it's a decision that I kind of really like and back I'm kind of surprised that they did it and I wonder if that will kind of be a bit flat for some audiences to see these incredible superheroes you know confined to just like the home sphere they also get given a new house which I'm pretty sure is meant to be Tony Stark's house it looks exactly oh, the same. Oh, is it? Is okay. Because I, I was vaguely thinking like this, this, does this look familiar? Like it does look like I've seen it before yeah, or is it just it's that from, it's every like fancy film home ever? Like if you Google the Iron Man house, hmm. it's like down to the the sofa and the lamp and the view. Well, not quite oh, wow, the view, okay. but it's like exactly the same. Yeah. It's very, very odd. I thought, I thought that was a bold decision, but one that I actually really liked. I, um, Violet's kind of dealing with fancying uh, a boy at school and trying to get a date <laughs> um which you know I guess you could be like oh it's annoying that the the eldest daughter is just like given a romantic plot line but I actually really liked it Dash is like struggling with his maths homework <laughs> which again it's just like the most boring plot you could possibly <laughs> imagine for a kid with super speed but I kind of love it and um yeah Jack Jack is just a baby discovering that he's got all these weird powers and Bob, Mr. Incredible, is just struggling to deal with it all, getting like an increasingly frantic five o'clock shadow, um, falling asleep at all hours of the day. I kind of loved it. Yeah, I think, it, as you say, it was a slightly left field decision to give all of the like action sequences and hero work to the lady um, 
wouldn't happen in a like real people film I'm sure mm. but um yeah so she's off like fighting a very interesting enemy who's called Screenslaver which I think is a sort of knowing wink at the whole like children and every adults are all addicted to their phones mm. and screens and no one ever goes outside anymore so they've given the villain a, a name and a sort of premise that fits with that and you know the screens can hypnotize people and Elastigirl has to save you and that kind of thing so she's off doing that and yeah Mr. Incredible is running around after the kids and trying to work out how to do laundry and stuff and I found it really interesting again there was that subtle like masculinity commentary in it I felt because for the first day or so he's getting very like why am I here mm. he gets really resentful of and when he has a phone call with his wife and she's like, oh, it was incredible. I did this, I did that. And, and he's like, that's great, love, through gritted teeth. And then he has this real turnaround where he's like, I'm Mr. Incredible. I need to be incredible at this too. Mm. And suddenly, he, you know, he stays up all night to learn how they do maths now so that he can help his son. And, you know, he kind of really steps up mm. and gets over his like petty, petty sort of masculine jealousy that he's not the one doing all of the hero work mm -hmm. um so yeah i i like that as a message in a film i i think i i texted you about this it was really interesting in my screening that like every i went to a sort of half four screening because i'm a freelance and i can do that and it was clearly like just after school had finished so there were loads and loads of kids and families there and everyone under the age of about 12 was really enjoying the film and everyone over 17 or 18 was really enjoying it as well because mm. it's a classic Pixar film in the sense that there's a lot of jokes and stuff in there for adults that will go over kids' heads. Um, but the sort of mid-teenage years were not enjoying it at all and three teenage girls who were sat behind me walked out halfway through loudly declaring the film to be too cringe <laughs> to bear. That's really funny. <laughs> I thought was funny because I, I don't know. I would have thought all the the plot lines with Violet at her high school and the boy and stuff would have been totally relatable, but mm. apparently not. That's interesting. I agree that it was kind of like a bold and good decision to have um, Mrs. Incredible Elastigirl doing so much stuff. But I feel like I just want to. I want to check, but I feel like there wasn't. There was hardly any women in the in the credits when this film, when the credits were showing. Um, I couldn't. Oh, I didn't really notice, but I can believe that. Yeah, it's obviously directed and I... written by Brad Bird, who's like a huge Pixar icon. It's also executive produced by John Lasseter, which is kind of uncomfortable because John Lasseter, who works mm. at Pixar, has obviously been going through some quite intense accusations lately, and Pixar's culture has really come under the the spotlight in the last year, and. There was I did have a moment in the cinema where I was like, this is kind of a surface level feministy picture. Mm. It's got like those those kind of gestures towards a kind of more um equal representation style of storytelling. But I wonder how much that represents the actual um script writing process and production process and um, so I just, you know, it's almost, it's almost a, a side point, but just a little moment I had in the cinema that I thought, I, I know seriously listeners are interested in, in, um, mm. you know, how, how well represented women are on script writing and production teams and stuff. And I did just kind of have a moment of thinking like, wow, is this a little bit hypocritical, but I guess it's hard to, well, it's hard, <laughs> hard yeah, to do much about I mean, that. I um 
I guess, reconciled to the fact that my liking The Incredibles is another problematic fave. And yeah, I mean, I even on top of all of that stuff, I read somewhere that this film isn't exactly the version of the film that they initially wanted to make as well, because it was meant to come out next year, but Disney swapped its sort of distribution slot with Toy Story 4. So they've delayed Toy Story 4 and brought this forward. And so I think Brad Bird said it in an interview when someone asked him, like, is there going to be an Incredibles 3? And he was like, well, we actually have some stuff that was going to be in this film that wasn't because we ran out of time. So I guess we kind of could do a third one. Interesting. So... I think there has been some kind of chaos behind the scenes a bit. Yeah, there's one, I've just checked, there's one one female producer, Nicole Paraday Grindle, who's also was a producer on Inside Out on the mm. first Incredibles movie. Yeah, that's that's the extent of it, really. So, yeah, interesting. Um, I'm keeping my eye on everything Pixar's doing very much in this way at the moment because, you know, I've read some really, there's some really interesting stuff out there if people are interested in this about, from from especially female animators kind of talking about their experiences at Pixar and the and the kind of boys co- club culture there. Mm, yeah. Um so yeah, if you're interested, there's a lot of stuff out there that you can search for on Google, but I did really enjoy the Incredibles 2 movie. Thought it was great. Yeah, me too. So last week, uh, I recommended that Caroline listen to the Let's Eat Grandma record, uh, I'm All Ears. Let's Eat Grandma are a band. They're two 19-year-olds from Norwich. And their first album was kind of folky and strange and was met with acclaim. But their second album has kind of surpassed those expectations that they set for themselves with their debut. And it's become something weirder, Mm. more electronic darker bassier uh more experimental but at its core very kind of poppy um so there's still kind of lots of catchy hooks and stuff so uh it's produced um as well by sophie who is an artist that's um kind of doing similarly experimental strange electronic pop and someone from the horrors as well which obviously the horrors were kind of like a indie guitar band mm. um so there's a lot of different influences on there so caroline what did you make of it i think i like it but i find it hard to be absolutely sure because as you say it's quite complicated and it's lots of different things mm. and i don't i think it's the kind of thing that i really have to be in the mood for because mm. a few times when i've been listening to it i've had one of those moments of like oh this is great like why haven't i been listening to this music before um and then other times probably I've been trying to listen to it while I've been trying to work or something like that, which it's not necessarily that great for. Mm. Where I'm like, okay, fine. We were, you know, I was enjoying this quite nice pop song. Why are you suddenly banging things in a really arrhythmical way? Stop it. You know? Yeah, yeah, it, totally get It's that. got that kind of feeling for me about it. So yeah, I suppose it's the kind of thing where like, on an intellectual level, I completely get that they're doing something really interesting and fascinating and clever and different but I haven't like fully like fallen in love with it yet Mm. that's fair enough I think there are some more catchy poppiest tracks like hot pink which is yeah that's one one of of the the singles singles, isn't it yeah yeah um and then there are also some like really weird ones so there's a track called the cat's pajamas that is essentially just like a cat purring over some weird (laughs) instrumentation and then I just hear it going like 
<laughs> which is a noise that I just find absolutely horrific and disgusting. So <laughs> there are like, yeah, there are peaks and troughs, definitely. But for me, I just, I don't know, I just found it so incredibly evocative. And I was just sat there like thinking, God, oh, that sounds like it would look like this. And yeah, it's just bizarre and sensory and evocative to me in a way that I'm like wow an album hasn't done that to me in a little while Mm. yeah and I have to say it does make me really pleased and hopeful that some teenagers from Norwich are doing music like this and Mm. that you know they are getting the kind of reviews that they're getting and hopefully set on the path to have a long career doing this kind of thing as well because I do occasionally have little moments of gloom when you know when like BBC introducing or the sort of what's their big music prize called that um, Sigrid won sound this year? Of. Sound of. You know, when it's won by, you know, some, as much as I really like Sigrid, like, you know, she's hyper produced. She's hyper produced and she's from Norway. It, sometimes I feel a little bit like we overlook our homegrown talent. Right. Yeah. Totally. Um, so that, in that sense, that makes me really pleased that they've come through as they have. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it, at least in part. Yeah. I what, think I've still think got we- to work on it. Yeah, fair enough. What do you think we're going to do for next week? So, well, it's not going to be exactly next week because, listeners, we are about to have a slight disruption to Seriously Service as we have summer holidays coming up. But so we're going to we're going to work on a new podcast from Slate that's called Decoder Ring which I have listened to one episode of and I think you're going to find really interesting. So we're going to listen to what the, the episodes that are out of that and when we come back in August, we're going to talk about that in detail. So yeah, it's a Slate podcast that is, I think loosely you'd say it's about pop culture. The name Decoder Ring is kind of a nod to, um, you know, American serial packet prizes, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but also suggests that it's about deconstructing and like revealing hidden messages in things. And Typically, therefore, the first or one of the first episodes that came out was about this, like, if you're at all into Sherlock fandom, you will know about this, this thing called the John Locke conspiracy, which I don't want to say that much more about because I'll probably mess up Mm. the description. But even if you've never heard of it before, this episode will both explain and baffle you. Okay, I can't wait. That sounds really exciting. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from The New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.